I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Welcome to the Tuesday live stream. I, I am live stream, live stream. I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and um, this is where I'm going to answer your questions, whatever they happen to be, right now in the chat. And I'm actually already loaded up with several questions because some of you have entered the, the live chat early, and um, the person who's currently helping me tonight with the uh, getting your questions is actually Sarah Zimmerman, one of my mods here on uh, YouTube. And she has uh, already sent me over several of your questions, so you can keep them coming. I'll give you guys the little uh, preamble, something you're going to know right now. Um, if you're watching the replay of this live stream, we're going to try and get uh, timestamps in the video description down below that will give you like the details of what questions were asked at what time, so you can navigate through this in a way that will hopefully bless you uh, to the maximum blessability. And um, if you are asking questions, we're limiting it, trying to limit it to one question per person because we get a lot of questions in. So make sure that you're asking the question that really matters to you. And I will give you the best answer I can. Um, and I will not make stuff up because <laughs> I hate that when I hear leaders do that and, and pastors sometimes even do that. Let's be honest though, other people do it too. It just seems worse when a pastor does it, right? Um, so I'm going to give you just my honest answers, guys. And uh, this is the Tuesday live stream. Again, I'm Mike Winger. And if you have not done this, uh, you want to catch my content online, I encourage you to uh, to like to share this video, but also to subscribe and click that little bell because it will allow you to get future updates whenever I make videos. And I'll be doing videos for the next month on the resurrection of Jesus, on evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and things that are around that topic as I prepare for an upcoming debate that's happening on April 11th with Matt Dillahunty. And um, we'll be doing a lot, of, uh, a lot of stuff about how reasonable it is based on evidence to believe in the resurrection of Christ. So I'm excited for that debate. Really appreciate your prayers. But let's jump into your questions it's good to be back. I'll tell you a little more about my my backness, my vacation and stuff like that as we go further on. But but um, I think the fruit of this isn't uh, isn't that information. It's the it's the it's the questions, the Q and A, the dialogue back and forth that we get to have. So the first question today is from Jacob Seiler. Uh, hi Jacob, glad you're joining me again. And he asks um, if uh, Jesus is not the Father, why did he say he was in John fourteen verse nine? Now I actually have my Bible software, which is some somewhat jankily loaded here. Let me let me see if I can make this look a little better for you. Um, but I'm going to go to John 14:9, and we're going to see: Did Jesus actually say that he was the Father in this passage? Because I think the truth is he didn't. So there's a passage we'll be going to a little bit later in Timothy. Um, making sure you can read it. Okay, so John 14 verse 9. Okay, this is here in, in the, uh, the big section of the Gospel of John that it all is sur surrounding the death of Christ. It's like a huge chunk of John is written, with, written within that last week of Jesus' life before his death and then resurrection. So that's where, the, where this section is. And he's sort of unveiling a lot of truth to them right now. And one of the things he says here, I'll, I'll just back up a little bit. This is where, you know, Jesus, he tells them not to be afraid, but to to counter their fear by trusting in God. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. By the way, it's a bold statement to say that you believe in God, you should believe in him, as though there's some equality between believing in God, believing in Jesus, because there is. It's just interesting to see it in there. Um, so then um, uh, he claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. And then Philip asks for him to give him some sort of 
final piece of evidence. Like, he, you know, they're, they're like, we're talking plain here, Jesus. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily say Philip won't believe unless um, he sees the Father. Rather, Philip is just asking to see the Father. He, he wants a revelation of God and he believes Jesus can give him this incredible revelation of God. Okay, that's the request. That's the context. So it, it makes sense then if you're asking for a revelation of God that Jesus responds, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, in, in this verse, uh, John 14, 9, it, Jacob, I just want to point out to you that Jesus doesn't say, I am the Father. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's a big difference between those two claims. This is consistent with, uh, with Hebrews 1, for instance. Um, I'll, let's take us there real quick. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He, okay, so the radiance is that which comes out for, you know, like comes towards us from the glory of God. This is Jesus. We see him. We see the father. He's, he's the one making the Father known. He's manifesting, manifesting a visual present uh, representation of the Father without being the Father. But he's God, but he's not the Father. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. And that's consistent with John 14, 9, where he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He doesn't say, I am the Father. Rather, the revelation of who I am is also the revelation of who the Father is. Um, he goes on to, to keep this um, this sort of two truths of the, of the doctrine of the Trinity, that Jesus is God, yet he is not the Father, but he reveals the Father, but he's not the same. And uh, verse 10, he says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So he's not saying I am the Father. He says, I'm in the Father, the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe in me, uh, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And so as you continue reading, you'll, you'll, you'll constantly get this, this idea that the Father and Jesus are not the same. They're not the same person. Verse 13 goes on. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So he's, he's uh, giving us all these different indicators to keep this, these important truths, these pillar truths of, of the nature of who God is, that, uh, that, that, that there is only one God, um, yet there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So... Uh, he even goes on and later on in, to talk about the Holy Spirit in that passage. We have so many questions. I don't want to spend too much time on one question, but I, I hope that answers it for you, Jacob. It's a misreading of the text to say Jesus said, I am the Father. He merely said, um, I'm, if you've seen the Father, you've seen, you've, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father because the Father is in me. But he differentiates that him and the Father are not uh, identical. Um, let's take another question. First and last, or excuse me, first last question. Here we go. First last is the name of the person who asked the question. Does God at times want a believer to be wealthy and pursue wealth, have a big house, or buy um, an expensive car? Would you just would you trust someone whose prophecy is weighted towards wealth and success? Um, no, uh, I'll answer the second question first. I will not trust someone whose whose prophetic utterances, where they claim to speak, uh, you know, from God. And they're telling, and, and they're basically focused on giving us wealth and success. It's it's actually this is this is a dangerous thing for us. It's an indication that someone is is 
a false prophet, I think, when they come to us in this season of God working, right? And they tell us that we're going to get wealth and success, wealth and success. Um, in uh, the book of First uh, Peter, we, we see all these warnings about false teachers. And one of the things they do is they, they appeal to people based upon their own carnal desires. That would be wealth and prosperity and pleasures. And they appeal to these things. And so then the, the, the wealth preacher, the one who's preaching wealth in this life, and the greedy person, they find in each other like their, their companions. And so my heart sometimes breaks when I see how many people follow these prosperity preachers. But I realize they're following them because they're, I'm sorry, but I think because they're selfish and greedy in some cases. Maybe in other cases, they, um, there's other things going on. But in some cases, it's the selfishness and greed that's there. Jesus told us to expect troubles in this world. Uh, Christ told us that in this world, we'd have many troubles. Um, in James, it, it says specifically about the, in James 1, about the, the rich, that he should weep and wail. This is talking about the rich who's seeking tr- treasure in this world rather than storing up and serving the kingdom of God, storing up treasures in heaven. Jesus himself said that we should store up treasures in heaven, not on earth, so that if there is a, a wealthy man, which is not bad, it's not bad to be wealthy. What's bad is that your heart is in your wealth. What's bad is that your your agendas and goals in your life are about your wealth. That's evil. You can be poor and be that kind of person. You can be rich and not be that kind of person. It just it just depends. Um, so if you're preaching that sort of prosperity, and they always hit the same points, you know, like no matter what the prosperity preacher is talking about, it seems to me that they're always they always land their message to apply it. They always land it in your business, your marriage. Your, well, not so much your marriage. <laughs> they landed in your business, your financial wealth, right? Your, um, your, your physical health, um, and uh, and your your authority and position in the world. These are like the three things that they sort of landed in, which to me seems like the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. <laughs> it seems like that's where the preaching is directing people towards. Uh, I I laugh, but it's not funny. Uh, it's actually pretty horrific. Um, what they often do is they take these Old Testament passages where God is promising things to Israel and they apply them with, without any concern for context. Um, and they ignore the specific teachings of Jesus about the, uh, the, the the trials we'll have in this world and about giving up what we have in this world to take up our cross and follow him and all that. So to answer that question, I'll make sure I didn't miss any of it there. Um, does God want a believer to be wealthy? Um, yeah, I think he does. Does he want us to pursue wealth? No, I don't I don't think so. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things in the context of Matthew 6 there is the, 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 the basic needs of life, food, shelter, clothing, that sort of thing. These things will be added to you so that our agenda is always seeking first God's kingdom. Does that mean that you'll make decisions that make you less wealthy that you might serve the Lord? Probably yes. Um, so pursue wealth is a, is is perhaps a dangerous thing. Um, now you can you can start a business where you're like I want to start a business that does really well that I can employ lots of people that I can sponsor and and take care of missionaries and and support missions and things like that. I think that's a noble and wonderful thing. But if you're using that business to just mainly line your pocketbook so that it's like everybody's sort of funneling their money to you personally that you might be just this really rich person, um, that doesn't really seem like it's consistent with the Christian value system. Yeah. So 
Um, let's see. Christopher White. Uh, hi, Christopher. Asked a question. Um, Mike Winger, there's a uh, video going around by Creation Liberty Evangelism that the word repent, metanoia, means godly grief and sorrow. I rebuked him, but is there any merit to his teaching? Um, you know, maybe I can help by pulling up the word repent and just showing it to you guys in the Greek. What, what does the word re repent really mean? Um, here, let's go to Revelation 3.19. And he says, be zealous and repent. But what I'll do is I'll bring it up in... Um, I'll bring up the Greek of it here. So just a moment while I do that. Revelation 3.19. Here, I'll try to show you what I'm looking at. I think you guys should be able to see that. Um, here we go. All right. Um, doo -doo -doo, bring in the, I'm just increasing the font of this now so we can look at it. So here's the word repent. So uh, metanoia is like the, the, the lexical form of a word. It's just the way they do Greek. There's like a lexical standard way of saying a word. But every time you find it in a context, it'll have a different ending, sometimes a different beginning, because it's the way the words work in Greek. It's, it's interesting how they do it. But um, this is uh, metanoia, metanoison, but it's metanoia, I believe, is the standard. Let's bring up the actual definition of that word itself. There we go. Metanoeo, this is the verb form, because it's, it's being commanded that you would repent. That's this passage in, in uh, um, gosh, I, I wish that the, making the font so big didn't make it so hard for you guys to read this. But let's, we'll look at the uh, Lunita there. Okay, here's the Greek word, and here is just a Greek resource. Now, a lot of times you guys will run to Strong's. And I know that when I first started studying the Bible, I was told, get a Strong's. And I got myself a Strong's Concordance. I was actually very excited to have it. I could look up any word in English and I could find it in Strong's Concordance. What I didn't know and what maybe you don't know is that Strong's Concordance isn't actually a very thorough resource. When you read a word in Strong's, it usually just gives you not what the word means so much as how the word is translated in the King James Version. And so you'll get a word like this and you'll just see how it's translated. What you kind of want, if you can find it, is a resource that gives you more data than that, right? Like more information about the word. And so that's where like Bible software can come in and be helpful. It's expensive. Uh, it is very expensive, um, but it can be useful. So this is an example. Here's a free demonstration for you. Um, here's that word. And here's the, uh, here's the description of it. To change one's way of life as the result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. To repent or to change one's way. Repentance. Um, so the, the overall emphasis here, you c we can read on of course, but is the idea of change. You need to change. That's the idea. You need to change. Um, now I wouldn't say that repentance includes the word grief in it. I would say according to first Corinthians or second Corinthians, uh, godly sorrow produces repentance, meaning that that grief leads to repentance and that's a good thing that's a that's the right kind of grief the wrong kind of grief has you despairing and continuing in your sin and continuing in rebellion against god but we are being told to repent it's it's an idea of a change of, a, of an actual transition from one thing to another um, so let's see should i read more um though in english a focal component of repent is the sorrow or contrition that a person experiences because of sin the emphasis in metanoeo and metanoia seems to be more specifically the total change, both in thought and behavior with respect to how one should both think and act. Whether the focus is upon attitude or behavior varies somewhat in different contexts. Sometimes it's a mental 
repent in your mind of that attitude. Sometimes it's a behavioral change. Um, whether the focus is, oh yeah, it differs. Compare, for example, and it gives us some passages. Uh, Luke 3, 8, um, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Uh, repentance there is treated as an attitude that then has fruit in actions. Um, Hebrews 6, 1, let us, um, oh, it doesn't really give us much context there. Acts 26, 20. Yeah, they bear, they, they perform deeds, it says, in keeping with their repentance in that passage. So, so their repentance is like this, this mental attitude change. And then if it's, if that mental change has happened, then you expect the life change to result as well. But the attitude of grief, I think in the biblical thing, and it consistent with the Greek here, that grief attitude, since that's what your question focuses on is more, um, what leads to repentance than it is the actual, uh, active repenting, um, there you go, <laughs> Christopher. I'm not sure the context of that video. There's just some information about the about the word itself. And um, now I would normally look it up in a few more common, uh, you know, Greek resources to compare them all. But for the sake of time, I'm not going to try and do all that here. Um, I think that that should be helpful for you. Um, okay. So the next question is from Joey Fisher. Is, do you have any study tips for someone starting to dig deeper in the Bible? Uh, note-taking tips, how to determine a credible source, questions to ask while studying uh, other organizations, tips, etc. Sure, let me give you some tips. This will not be like, you know, across the board, this applies to everything. It certainly won't be like that. Uh, rather, these little tips are just going to be off the top of my head right now. Maybe one day I'll do like, you know, a video about how to study the Bible. I've thought about doing this kind of thing. I know it would probably be beneficial to some people. Um, so here's some tips. You asked about going deeper in the Bible. I would say the first thing about going deeper in the Bible is to spend more time reading the text itself. I know this is like really trivial, it seems, but it's actually so important to actually just read the passage. Like we sometimes spend more time in commentaries than we do in the passage. And we should actually read the passage. We shouldn't just read the passage. We should make sure we know the context, the flow of the book. That alone can take a lot of work. I've had many times where I've taught studies and I never read a commentary because I spent my whole time just reading that passage, reading parallel passages, backing up you know, to the beginning of the book, reading the whole book, reading several chapters, just trying to soak in the context, get in the mindset of the book, of that passage so I can understand it, comparing it you know, Bible with Bible. And um, I think that's like the number one thing there is just read it, read it, read it, look at it in context, let yourself understand it to the best of your ability if you run to commentaries first what happens is it, it it causes you to ask their questions instead of your questions and it it can happen here's here's what i don't like in commentaries you read a commentary and it says well obviously this means this you read a different commentary and it says well obviously and completely disagrees with the other one so what i look for in commentaries isn't some authoritative source to tell me what to think what I look for is for them to share with me how they come to their conclusions and then try to see, hey, does that seem valid? Is that consistent in the passage? Because I spend so much time in the passage, when I read the commentary, it should immediately like pop into my mind. That's consistent with the verse before, after, with the chapter it's in. That's consistent with the book and the flow of thought. Or to say, nope, that doesn't work. That's not consistent. Uh, so there's a couple things to look for. I say if you're going to read one commentary, read more than one. Um, because what will happen is you'll find that they're not as, um, uh, things aren't as obvious as sometimes commentators say they are. <laughs> so, so you want to read more than one so that you have multiple sources on things. I'm a huge fan of having multiple sources. I think that as Christians, we should not 
only sit under one Bible teacher our whole lives. I think that we sit under one Bible, but we should have lots of teachers. I think that's just healthy. And I'm, you know, maybe for some people that's, it's disconcerting because when they hear one teacher disagree with another, they realize they can't just take that guy's word for everything. But that's kind of my point. Um, we've got to think these things through. We've got to, we've got to be thoughtful believers and um, notice the difference between me absorbing that guy's teaching versus processing that guy's teaching, you know, and thinking it through and then saying, I'm staying faithful to the text. Um, it's, it's work, it's work, but it's good work and it's worthwhile. Um, so there's a couple things for you. Um, as far as resources, like blueletterbible.org has tons of free resources for you. They have commentaries. You can compare different ones. They have lots of just just go and explore the site and kind of play with it and see what's on there i think that's one great resource uh for you to look at so there's a few things for you i hope that that's helpful um insects are cool um says uh, matthew 27 mentions saints raised from the dead no one else mentions this not even in the other gospels why does no one else mention this weird event um well in a, in a sense, just so you guys know, Insects Are Cool has been following this channel for a while now. She's an atheist, and I'm so glad that she's here with us. Um, so Matthew 27, is it talks, it just has this really brief message that many of the, of the saints rose that day when Christ died at his death, that many of the saints rose out of their graves and that they had entered the city. And so we don't really know a whole lot about this. There's a later historical account. I can't remember who wrote it that um that these men were known and that they that they uh like it talks about one of the last of them to live and and still be around or something like that i don't know if that's valid i haven't checked into that I, i'm not going to take a side on it but there is one account that i know of that's uh not one of the gospels not i don't know i don't it's not even first century it's like second century i think anyways um why don't the other gospel writers mention this i don't i don't know why um i don't know why they didn't I mean, I think they probably had reasons. My guess would be things like um, it wasn't part of the main point that they were trying to make. Um, it, uh, it it didn't fit on the scroll. They were trying to make a book that would fit on a scroll and they had to leave out a bunch of stuff. <laughs> you know, I don't know all of the details there. It's, but, but here's the assumption that's behind the question. Maybe not from you, Insects Are Cool, but from others. I've had the same question from others. There's an assumption behind it, which is um, we can we can say it's not true because other gospel writers didn't record it. And that is a problem um, because basically what you can do now is you can compare all of the gospels and everything that's recorded only in Matthew, only in Mark, only in Luke and only in John. We can discount, which are some very significant things, by the way, very important things and events and people and statements. And we can just throw them all away. And then we're left with only the places where they all agree upon which... I know the same skeptic that challenges with this question, the same person is going to say, well, we have to throw out the stuff where they agree because where they're agreeing, they're just copying each other. So, but this is like the most reckless way of addressing history. I, I think it's a problem. Um, I do think that Matthew 27, the stuff that's recorded there really happened. And I think I have good reason to think it really happened. But my reasons will come back to uh, showing that the Bible is in fact inspired by God and therefore trustworthy. Um, so, then we'll go down the path of things like prophecy and um, uh, evidence for the resurrection and things like that. So just checking to make sure I don't have any scary messages about how my my, my, my uh, stream's not working. <laughs> Thank you guys for joining with me. Um, we've, 
we've got uh, a bunch of you, over 300 people with us right now today, and it's a blessing to have you. The goal of this ministry is to get you to think biblically about everything, to kind of process things thoughtfully to the best of my ability anyway. And as I do this with you, uh, my goal is that it helps you do it yourself even better, that it just adds something to your own ability in these areas. I like to handle theology and apologetics, and I do with, I do this every Tuesday, but I try to put out actually um, a lot of other content as well online that's all along these same lines. Um, speaking of which, quick announcement before I go to the next question. Tomorrow, I'll be doing a live stream with uh, Cameron Bertuzzi and John McRae. These are two other Christian YouTubers uh, running the channels. Cameron runs uh, Capturing Christianity and John McRae, he runs the, uh, the channel What Do You Meme? And we've partnered together and we've made 20 videos and they're coming out one every day. And they started, it started on March 5th and every day we're putting out a video. So we're about halfway through almost that process. We're going to do a live stream tomorrow to talk about that, the project we're working on. And I'll be asking them some questions and we'll, we'll tackle some Q&A stuff from you guys as well. So that's happening tomorrow at 6 p.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time. 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time tomorrow. That's Wednesday. Let me see. Wednesday, March 13th, 2019. That would be this year. Okay. Well, next question. Um, okay, this one's from Justin Barnes. Question for uh, Brother Winger. What were your thoughts of the debate you moderated between Hovind and Gart? Okay, so Cy Gart and Kent Hovind. Uh, Cy Gart is from Biologos, which he's, a, he's an evolutionist, but he's, a, he's also a, a Christian. He believes, uh, he believes in Christianity, but he also believes that evolution does account, at least, I don't know to what extent, but it accounts for uh, life on this earth um, in, in the broad sense. And then uh, Ken Hovind, who's a young earth creationist. So I moderated the debate. Um, I was just asked to do that as a favor for James. Who, and I like supporting Christian YouTubers and going on their channels when I can to support them. I want more Christians online, even if we don't all agree on everything. I just want more Christian voices in the, in the, in the YouTube space. And so I, I was there supporting James and his, his channel, um, Modern Day Debates, or Modern Day Debate. And he just does tons of debates uh, on his channel. And he's trying to get better and better at it all the time. Um, you guys can check it out. Now, I felt that in that particular debate, it felt like Ken Hovind, he was saying, young earth creationism is true. And Psy was saying, um, you know, science and uh, religion are not at odds. And and because they were both saying two very different things, it it felt like they weren't really connecting with each other's arguments. The topic of the debate was our um, science and religion at odds or something like that. It was something like our science and religion at odds. But I felt like Kent came and he argued something a little different. He argued young earth creationism, creationism is true. And and Sai just sort of talked about that the actual, the topic of the debate, but didn't really engage with each other. So that was, you know, it wasn't like it's fruitless. It just wasn't maybe what you'd hope for. Being the watcher, the viewer of a debate, you want to see sort of the key issues get pulled out by these debaters and then you want to hear them go back and forth on those key issues and that that unfortunately didn't happen uh, so much so i'm not knocking the guys i'm just talking about how the debate went so yeah that was it um leanne waters says uh do you believe those who teach false doctrines that um for example that homosexual relations are okay are in a sense rejecting the true jesus and true gospel since they preach something counter to the gospel Ooh, I am inclined to yet to say yes, and I'll tell you why. 
Um, First Corinthians. Oh, here, let me. I'll take you guys to it. Um, First Corinthians six nine. There's a way to indirectly um, subvert the gospel of Christ. And I think that that's what happens. If someone teaches, for your example, that homosexual relations are, and I mean sexual activities that belong between husband and wife are okay outside of that marriage relationship. So this would include homosexuality, fornication. It would include a lot of things. But but look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. As in, I mean, when the Bible says don't be deceived, it's implying that some people will be deceived on this topic, right? And it goes on to say, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of, of our God. The idea is this. Um, if I preach to people that those sins, I don't know why that popped over there. Weren't it? There we go. That those sins that are listed here in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, I'm deceiving people about the very nature of the gospel. If they believe me and they b- go and live those lifestyles, it means that they've, they're not repentant. They're just continuing to walk in those sins and live a lifestyle of those sins. The way it's written, it seems like sexually immoral. It, it means a lifestyle of sexual immorality, a lifestyle of idolatry, a lifestyle of adultery, a lifestyle of practicing homosexuality. There's a debate there about the Greek terms, but there absolutely means homosexuality. Um, some people think that They've got the inside scoop that this isn't about homosexuality, but these Greek terms themselves are absolutely talking about homosexuality. If just study it for yourself. Don't don't read some uh, some propaganda and ignore it because we we need to not be deceived on these issues. So because of that, I would say that it's it's see Christianity is not up to me. I don't get to remake it in my image. I don't get to to update it for modern people. I don't get to say to the Bible, hey, it's 2019. You need to change. Like this is the truth of God. And a year moving forward on the calendar doesn't change reality. Um, I need, whatever the consequence, I have to stand upon the truth of God's word and say that those who live sinful lives are headed towards hell. And Jesus is the only way out. But he is the way out. He is the way out. But what First Corinthians 6, 9 is saying is if I preach to people that they can, you know, come to Jesus, but absolutely stay in their sins and just continue doing their sin and like this sort of easy believism or something... That is not true. That's not the true gospel of Christ. I do think I'm leading people astray. And um, and you may have faith in place and you may have the identity of Jesus in place, but you haven't had the response of a life that actually repents and turns to God. Um, so yeah, this isn't to say that Christians don't have any sin issues. Um, I don't not. I mean, I do uh, and you do. We all do. It's to say that when, when someone justifies sin and makes a lifestyle of sin an acceptable thing and says, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, the blood of Jesus is going to take care of that. Like the blood of Jesus can take care of that. The question is, are you really under the blood of Christ when you're living that way? Have you really come under his blood? Have you really accepted Christ? And I think the answer, but based on that passage in 1 Corinthians, it seems to be no. Um, So heavy, heavy stuff. Yeah, some pastors male and female pastors that will go up up there and say, Hey, um, uh, it's all about love. It's all about grace. It's all like, they're only reading They're Swiss cheesing the Bible, right? They're just, they're just cutting giant passages out of scripture and they're making this sort of 
distorted monster like abomination of the gospel like this is not the gospel it, the, the gospel isn't about making god right with man it's about making man right with god that's the idea so um i do feel a little passionate about that because i see it happening all around me it breaks my heart um Patrick Mosher says, is there any secular historical or archaeological evidence for the Exodus? Um, yeah, I think that there is, um, but I'm not familiar with the evidence enough to like present it to you right now. I'm, I, you know, one of these days I'd like to, I, oh, I just loaned it to uh, my brother-in-law, a book that was uh, bringing in some recent evidence, recent discoveries that are that's supportive of the idea of the Exodus. There's a lot of debates. It gets kind of hairy because there's like the early dating of the Exodus, the late dating of the Exodus. And um, I think the early dating, uh, but I'm not an archaeologist. I'm not going to pretend I am. When I'm able to gather in, understand, and categorize all that data, maybe one day I can bring it to you guys. But my short answer is yes, I think there's some evidence. Um, we're talking about an event that's over 3,000 years ago. So there's not exactly a ton of evidence left about anything that happened back then. So we have some evidence, and that is an, an interesting and wonderful thing. But I don't think that I have to prove everything in the Bible. Um, if I have to prove every single thing in the Bible in order to trust the Bible, then I'm literally never trusting the Bible. I'm doubting it entirely and just believing the pieces I can prove outside the scripture. I take a different tact. I say, hey, if I can demonstrate the Bible's from God, then I should trust it. That's the end of the question for me. But I also enjoy asking the questions of, well, what other extra biblical verifications do I have for this or for that? How can I build a case that builds a bridge to bring someone over here with other pieces of evidence? Things like that. Um, let me see. Next question. You guys asked some great questions, by the way. Um, Lady says, um, Lady, I like that. So L-E-I-G-H, Lay, and then D, Lady. Uh, anyway, says, could you please comment on 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15 about women being silent and not having authority in church, particularly how they are saved through childbirth in verse 15? Guys, this is a question I have got many times. Um, okay, so let me take us to the passage. It's um, 1 Timothy 2, verse 11 through 15. We're going to read the passage. And then I'm just going to do a little Bible study with you on it. We're just going to look at it verse by verse. I'll just go right to the main points that relate to this question. I'm not going to talk about everything I could think about here. Um, okay, so it says here, by the way, the context, to back up the context, is talking about the instructions to men and instructions to women. So, for instance, men are told, um, uh, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Two issues that men need to deal with, right, are anger and quarreling and that this is going to hinder our prayer especially our communal prayers that we have together then he says likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold and pearls or costly attire but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works so the statement to women there which is really needed today is the idea that that you need to care more about the inner person than you do the outer person. Our world is completely flips all this stuff upside down. Guys, it's all about competing. And women, it's all about competing. And so we have all these weird anxieties and um, oh, issues. Um, the scripture talks about modesty and that it's a, that it's a good thing and a beautiful thing. Um, the world thinks that a, a woman taking her clothes off is somehow liberating her. That's so sad. Um, until it's their daughter. And then they don't feel that way anymore. But... Okay, so verse 11, let's go on. It says, let a woman learn and qu learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. 
Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Okay, so I've spent a, a decent amount of time in this passage, and there are plenty of you out here who will disagree with me, but I want you to at least hear how I'm thinking about this and why I take the position I do. Um, I think the plain sense of the passage, that without, if, if I'm not trying to make it a make it more appealing to people in our modern culture and times. I think the plain sense of this passage is that um, this relates to a woman being quiet in the context of teaching. Why do I say in the context of teaching? Because she's learning quietly, as in it's a teaching environment. She's So we're in the church and there's prayers going on and the and the woman is not the the teaching elder of the fellowship. That's the idea. Now he goes on right after this to explain with, and now the chapter breaks are added by us, right? But he goes on to say about the qualifications for overseers, bishops or pastors. Uh, elder and overseer are, are all synonymous terms here in the passage um, in, in the New Testament. So he says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled. He goes on um, and it talks about how he has to be able to teach and things like this. Then it goes on to talk about the qualifications for deacons. Okay, so that's the context. The context of the statement about women is in the context of uh, teaching ministry in the church, um, overseers or elders, and then deacons. And it says that women should learn quietly with all submissiveness, or that they're not to take the role of lead pastor, like teaching elder, elder teaching elder in a fellowship, which there can be several teaching elders in one fellowship. That's totally fine, but to have that position as uh, for a woman would be what first Timothy is saying not to do. And I'll go on. He says, um, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now there's two ways to take this. Do we take this in verse 12 as two different things, or do we take it as the same thing expressed with sort of two sides of the coin? I kind of take it like it's the same thing said two different ways. I do not per per permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, this are kind of the same thing. See that teaching role does put you in a position of authority Right. This is this is within the church. First Timothy. These, this is the the letter. How he writes to Timothy. How things should be done in the church. It's not actually talking about businesses. It's not talking about the jobs of being the president of the U.S. or anything like that. Positions within the body of Christ in the local church, which is meant to represent God and His whole authority structure and all that. Um. So, uh, do, 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 rather she's to remain quiet. Again, that quietness is not like she can't talk. Right. In in the book of Acts, we read about. Uh, women who are prophesying and who are prophetesses in the book of Acts. And so they're obviously speaking in the church. Okay. This is obviously happening. This is not talking about talking at all. It's talking about speaking in the context of being a teaching leader in the church as he gets into the qualifications for leaders. He's saying that chapter three, these overseers, deacons, that, that, that especially the overseer role, that that role does not apply to women. Now I'm in trouble, right? <laughs> now I'm in a lot of trouble with a lot of people. I think that this is really what the text teaches. I don't think it's um, it's sexist. I think that it's um, it's God's ordained structure for men and women. Uh, some people right now, you're hearing me, and I'm, I'm just going to pause and speak to you for a minute. You're emotionally disturbed and upset because you've been wired to think that if a woman doesn't do the same thing as a man and can't, you can't say that she's capable and has a right to do all the same things a man does, that it's somehow like insulting or uh, that it's like hate speech or something like that against women. And I think that this is a grave misunderstanding. 
Um, we certainly don't think a man can do everything a woman can do. I don't think that a man is capable of, I don't know, having a child, like for instance, and that's why he gets into verse 15 childbearing. Um, I don't think that men are capable of performing to the same skill level as women, but here's in certain areas and vice versa. But here's something that's more important. I don't think we're called to, and that's the highlight of this passage. This isn't about ability and capability. There are women who are skilled at teaching, but they're not to take the pastoral role in ministry. That's the idea. And that is what I think this passage says. Now, I am open. I'm open to someone showing me in context that this is saying something different or that it applies in a different fashion. But that's after my studies, this is so far what my position is now. And I have to, I have to go with what I believe the text says. God certainly has the authority to tell us. I made you to demonstrate certain truths of reality, and I want your life to reflect those things. Men, don't mess it up. Women, don't mess it up. I want you to honor me with the way that you live. Um, but if, anyway, there's a, there's a huge, huge debate on this. I'm going to do some videos on this in the future, and I hope people will stick around for it. Uh, but the, the context here is saying that, yeah, woman, uh, you know, being quiet and learning with submission. It's, it's not, it's not um, women submitting here to all men in around her. That's not the idea. It's, it's just that she's, she's submitting to the authority structures that God has put in place. Um, verse 15 though is radically misunderstood because of this word saved. So let me come to verse 15. Yes, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. One of the flaws that I often point out is when we come to the Bible and we read a theological term into a normal dictionary usage of a word. What do I mean? I mean the word saved. We often think saved, you'll be saved, and we're thinking, oh, salvation. I'll be forgiven of my sins and secured with eternal life in heaven. Well, that's not what this is talking about. The word saved, sozo in the Greek, it's just talking about being saved from anything. Well, what in verse 15 is he telling saying the woman will be saved from i think the idea is there's this this status that might be seen as in some sense lower or lesser and he's saying yes but there's something that a woman has that the man does not and this this idea of childbearing i think there may be a nod here in verse 15 to paul simply saying hey the woman is um is a capable of bringing life into this world and has a unique role as a mother that no man could ever take, no man could ever even attempt to take. And in that, she has a special place. I mean, like when the guy wins the Super Bowl and he says, hi, mom, you know, instead of hi, dad. Like this is this is a special place in, in the life of every person is their mother. Hopefully, you know, in an ideal scenario, it doesn't always work out that way. But but yeah, the mom's got a, a special role that a, a dad doesn't doesn't have, can't take away and can't can't even pretend to fill. Like it's just not possible. So I think it's the saving is from this idea of, of this lowered status. Um, a few things I want to add to this. The Bible does say there's different, okay, from the beginning to end of, of the Bible, right? In Genesis, we have man and woman both made in the image of God. So we're both in God's image. There's this incredible high um, value to men and women both. Then we have the fall. Everything's changed. Things are different now, right? Um, not that our value is different, but but the created order is all different because of it. Then we have Jesus who shows up and, and we're to observe all these things within the church even, but Jesus shows up and as to salvation, men and women, there's no difference, right? Because there's no male or female, according to Galatians, in Christ. There's no male, female, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Uh, Christ is all and in all. So we're just identical as far as salvation's concerned. So when it comes to salvation and comes to eternity, there's this identicalness between men and women. 
But when it comes to living out life on this earth, while we're waiting for the fullness of the kingdom to come, there are different roles between men and women that should still be observed even within the church. Now, I'm sure some are like saying, yeah, Mike, preach it. And others are probably mad at me here. The question we should have is this. What does the Bible teach about this? Now, if you have the added baggage of, I have what I think it should say. And if it says something else, I'm mad. Can I say you are arrogant and in grave danger of rejecting the truth of God because of your preconceived notions about what value is and what equality and sameness are supposed to look like. And I think that we should come to the text of scripture and let God be God and not um, put all that baggage on him. The Bible is not politically correct. It's just correct. So there we go. Now I'm in trouble. <laughs> um, I do plan on, I'm, I'm sure later I'll think, oh, I should have said this. I should have said that. I, I, uh, and I'll, I'll share more, you know, in the future on those issues. This is just a, off the top of my head Q&A stuff. So I hope that that's fruitful for you guys. Um, Ian Connolly says, uh, people claim that the idea of a pre-trib rapture was made up very recently and not originally believed by an early by the early church fathers. Is there any validity to this claim? I don't know, Ian. Um, I, I need to do more research on that on my own. I know that um, Brian Broderson wrote a book a while ago in defense of the rapture, and he did go to some really early resources, early church history stuff to try to defend, but I, I can't remember what sources he quoted, um, and that was so long ago when I read it that I... I would have to read it again. You know, I've learned a lot since then. So I don't, I can't throw uh, any information at you for that to help you out. I'm sorry there. Um, something worth looking into for sure. Um, you are loved. Asked a question. It says, should I stay in a church where they use materials by false teachers or are reluctant to address the issues of false teachings and teachers? Um, I would absolutely stay in a church when they're reluctant to address the issues of false teachers. Um, but when they use materials by false teachers, I think it depends on what those materials are. For instance, if it is, um, we're promoting these books in our bookstore, we're, we're having them guest speak, we're quoting their sermons. Well, basically then you are the false teacher. If you're, if you're quoting their stuff, you're teaching what they're teaching and what they're teaching is false, then you're a false teacher. Like th that's the case. But it, let's say that the one issue that really is challenging is music. Um, let's say that you know that um that such and such group whether um it be let's say bethel music and you know that bethel music has these some really good songs and some some weird songs too and yet you know that the theology of the teachers and some of the leaders in the group have real serious issues and you're very worried and concerned about the direction they're trying to push the church um so can you do their songs just the ones that are like logically or theologically sound that are good as far as just look at the song look at the lyrics like this is a good song i think that that that's a decision that you've got to make I, I can't throw that at you um many people are saying already i know you can't use their music or yes you can well a lot of people like in my own fellowship are unaware of bethel music they literally they, they know some of the songs but they don't even know who they are they don't know who bill johnson is they don't know any of that stuff so it's, it's like it has no impact on them Whereas other churches, in some locations, they're listening to the music. The music brings them to the concert. The concert has them get the teaching. The teaching gets them locked into the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. And now they're like sucked into this sort of really rough, difficult time that they're going to have. Because they're going to have to try to unpack all of this weird teaching that they're going to get. And weird practices they're going to learn. Um, and so for those people, it's like, gosh, you never should have listened to the music because it led to that. Whereas other people, 
it seems like it has no effect on them and the music is some of it is theologically sound it's like that's just good words good lyrics singing to the lord so I, I i say that's up to individuals but i wouldn't leave a church over that over just the music in my opinion so i hope that that's some help to you there um tanya balzer says uh what are your thoughts on being slain in the spirit or drunk in the spirit um also on tongues actual languages versus unknown languages are the unknown utterances referred to as tongues today what paul talked about um i'll answer the second one first then we'll come to the slain in the spirit and drunk in the spirit stuff um okay the second one first uh i think the new testament talks about multiple types of tongues and, and uh, maybe paul alludes to this when he says uh the um uh tongues of men and of angels uh is possible he's alluding to it there uh, but but I think there's times, the rare times, where there's tongues with interpretation, uh, such as Pentecost, and First Corinthians talks about this. And there's times when there's tongues without interpretation, First Corinthians talks about that as well. And it seems to legitimize tongues with no interpretation. In other words, I'm apparently speaking nonsense to anybody who can hear me, just like as if you're hearing a foreign language. Um, now, if someone, what if someone was faking tongues? Well, it would look very much the same <laughs> as if it was real, you know, because because it would just sound like something you don't understand. But the New Testament says that that should be done in private, not in, in this public setting. If there's no one, no one to interpret, you're not edifying anybody. Just keep it to yourself. Um, and I think that the churches that ignore that teaching um, are ignoring what the Bible says about the issue. Now, the, the other question was, what are your thoughts on being slain in the spirit and drunk in the spirit? Um, I don't think that that... Okay, there's no... How do I put it this way? There's no biblical foundation for this that I can see. Okay, and the Holy Spirit was very active in the early church. In the book of Acts and in the letters to the churches, we read about a lot of what the Holy Spirit was doing. We don't read about slain and drunk in the Spirit. In fact, there seems to be a contrast between being in the Spirit and being drunk. Um, let me bring up the passage to you. And... It seems obvious to me, you guys. I don't understand the people that support this whole slain in the spirit, or drunk in the spirit stuff. But here's here's the idea of being drunk in the spirit. Um, verse 18 of Ephesians 5. And do not be drunk with wine in, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. Some people will take this verse and they will literally quote it to justify being drunk in the spirit. Because we're not getting drunk with wine, we're getting drunk in the spirit. Okay, that would be a comparison. That would be as if the text is saying that being drunk with wine is like being drunk with the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit. There's something else called a contrast, which is what this is, which is why it's, it's, it's written the way it is. Do not be drunk with wine, which we know is a bad thing. The Bible frowns upon it. We just read a passage that said drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. It didn't say drunk with wine. It just said drunkards. <laughs> um, so do not be drunk with wine. That's a bad thing. In which is dissipation. So it's waste, it's wastefulness, but, but contrast word, but be filled with the spirit. And what's the fruit of the spirit? Well, we, we read about this in, Gal in Galatians, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, self-control. Like these are the, the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Never does it say being unable to stand, not knowing how you got from one side of the room to the other. It doesn't say losing control of your body. It doesn't mention any of those things. That stuff's weird. It's weird from a biblical perspective, not just from my personal perspective. Um, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it talks about what we'll do as we're filled with this. We're going to be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual so songs, singing, making melody in your hearts to the Lord. There is a sober-mindedness 
in being filled with the Spirit. It's a relational filling of God's Holy Spirit that results in my life being more godly, more Christ-like. It is not me losing control of my body. And that was pretty much what I got when I went to a, a, a church when I was a kid. I was a teenager. And I got into a church that was very much into being slain in the Spirit and being falling down and things like this. And um, and speaking in tongues with no concern for what the Bible actually says about speaking in tongues, only with concern for pushing for experiences. I was very confused by it when I was young. Um, it wasn't until years later, because I did not read my Bible enough, that um, I went to a study and they were talking about 1 Corinthians. And they went through 1 Corinthians 14 and I went, there's rules for this? <laughs> I was shocked to find out there was like rules in the Bible for this kind of behavior. So like if, if you're a continuationist, you think that these, these gifts may continue today and happen today. You still shouldn't be that kind of continuationist. That's not biblical. It's not grounded with scripture. And um, anyway, that that's another whole big debate. I think being slain in the spirit is not biblical. Being drunk in the spirit is anti-biblical anti-biblical in fact even being slain in the spirit seems to be anti-biblical since the fruit of the spirit is self-control and the whole idea of being drunk in the spirit being slain in the spirit shaking and twitching in the spirit all seem to be losing control so that's not self-control that seems to be specifically against the the, the statement of what the, the filling of the holy spirit is about and it turns the work of the spirit into primarily being about making me feel a spiritual high if you can call it a spiritual high um as opposed to making me more like Jesus in my life. I need more of the Holy Spirit. So I might be a loving husband. So I might be a, a good, godly man. So that I might represent Christ to those around me. So that I might fight the battles against my flesh. Dying to myself and walking in the Spirit. And therefore not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. Like that's the real thrust of those things. The, the slain in the Spirit stuff, it, it's got no biblical basis. Um, and it's weird. And when I see guys like Benny Hinn throw their jackets at people. Um, I don't understand. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand it. And I and I don't know why it seems so mystical to people and they feel like they're supposed to be okay with it. Um, it just seems so weird. I'm just being honest with you guys. I don't see, it's not biblical and it and it's weird. Um, okay, so Jim McGregor has another question. Are ghosts real or are they evil spirits? Um, short answer? I'm inclined to think that they're uh, generally evil spirits um, and that um, the dead are not in, a, in and amongst us. I don't think that that's consistent with what I read in scripture. I think that they're unable to return. Uh, Jesus's story about Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man, he couldn't go back to his family. He wanted to, but he couldn't, he wasn't able to. Um, so I, I think that the old uh, thing we see in movies like, oh, they didn't go towards the light, like that kind of statement, it, it that's... That's, that's popular movie stuff. I don't really put a lot of stock in it. Um, yeah, so I would I would tend to think that there were somehow spirits, evil spirits. Even the witch at Endor, if you guys are familiar with the passage in Samuel, the witch at Endor who, who, uh, who when Samuel comes up, she's shocked that it worked. <laughs> she's like, whoa, what, what's going on? You know, she seems to have not anticipated this actually working. She was probably scamming people. Uh, maybe there was demonic spirits going on as well, but... Um, she seems to be surprised when Samuel comes up. It seems like that was the exception to the rule, not the rule. Um, so that's kind of how I view it. Um, Austin Avenaki, hi Austin, um, says, uh, have you heard of the International Christian Church? Uh, they seem to have a legalistic doctrine that controls and manipulates their members. Hoping you could check them out and let us know what you think. I haven't heard of them, um, so I'm sorry I can't comment at all on them. Um, but I'll keep them in mind. And if, if that kind of comes up, I'll try to remember that you brought it up as well. And maybe I'll look into it. 
I've got, uh, nowadays I get so many questions and so many opportunities um, that I can't answer them all. I actually, went, we went on vacation, me and my wife went to New York and we had a, a great time, ate a lot of really nice food and just kind of relaxed for, well, sort of relaxed. We walked around all, the, all over the place and took the subway and stuff um, and just had a little vacation. I, I didn't really respond to many messages. I didn't really on my emails. I decided to get caught up on my emails after getting home and it took me like three hours one night to get caught up on just the emails, not not Facebook messages, not Twitter private messages, not public messages on Facebook and Twitter, not YouTube comments, like just email. So I'm not able to keep up anymore. Um, so forgive me, you guys, if if you send me some important, valuable message and I'm not able to respond, it's not personal. I just I'm overwhelmed. It's like it's like it's like trying to scoop cups of water out of the ocean. It just doesn't seem to make a huge difference. That one person knows I responded, but for everyone who I do respond to, there's several I don't, and I'm sorry for that. Um, okay, so Christian Lubin says, I've heard different takes on the connection between the rapture and the third temple. Some say the temple has to be built prior to the rapture. Others say it doesn't. I'm wondering where you stand. Um, uh, I don't have a firm stance on that. I do think that there is going to be a future third temple, um, but I don't see that the rapture, if, if, if we're right about this doctrine of the rapture, I don't see that the timeline of the building of that temple has any necessity to be on one side or the other of that event. Uh, I'm not, yeah. If you're pre-trib rapture, if you're mid-trib rapture, then the building of the temple has to happen first. Or if you're post-trib rapture, then it has to happen first. Um, so yeah, but even if you're pre-trib, I don't, I don't see any necessity, um, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong. If, if there's anything I could be wrong about, it's going to be my understanding of the future fulfillment of prophecies, I think. Um, Emily Aspinall says, what's the biblical view on women teaching men in, pa in a pastoral role or leadership position in the church? I think I kind of shared that. I think the biblical view is not that women are incapable. It's not about capability and capacity. There's women who, who can teach much better than, than men. Um, uh, certainly quite a few of them. The question is, what is God calling us to do to honor him in the way that we're just called to live our lives. And in the capacity of the church, I don't think that women are called to that role. doesn't mean they can never teach anything, never share anything. Um, I think that's a different issue. I think that it's the pastoral role that's specifically not, not for, uh, not for them, not for women to participate in. Um, yeah, I think that's what the, the Bible teaches on it. Now, maybe I'm wrong and I'm open to it. Um, I haven't heard every argument of people trying to say otherwise, but that's my understanding of the text. And I want to honor God by honoring what he's told me to do and not to do. He's told me to submit to government. So I submit to government. He's told me to, to submit to leadership. So I submit to leadership. It's like, we all have to submit. We're all told to submit. Um, but in our culture, if you tell women to do something that you're not saying about men, then it's considered sexist. Well, at the same time, we have to recognize our culture is so oversensitive on this topic that we're not thinking clearly anymore. We have men competing in the Olympics as if they're women, which is actually destroying women's women's sports, not helping them. We've got to we've got to recognize differences here. Equality, equal but different. Uh, me and my wife are equal, but we're not the same. As um, as obvious and unpopular as that might be. Let's see. Where am I now? Um, Okay, Michael Gilbert has a question. Um, how would you evangelize to a pantheist and prove pantheism false? How would you evangelize to a polytheist such as a Hindu to prove their religion false? 
Um, so there's there's kind of a couple ways to do this. For one, I've never met a pantheist that was that was able to thoughtfully defend their pantheism. I've never met one, so I I haven't been able to engage in that discussion very well. Um, I know some people will use, especially atheists, will sometimes borrow other religions, and they'll sort of you know like use that religion as a tool against Christianity. Um, but they're not actually pantheists or not actually Hindus, perhaps. Um, I think that there's a problem with that, right? When you're going to use something you don't believe to try to defense, defeat something else you don't believe, there's something inherently wrong with that logic. Um, how about just defend what you really think? Now, um, pantheism itself, uh, I think what you need to do is, I don't have to defeat pantheism directly. I can show Christianity is true, and it, that defeats pantheism you know, indirectly. If Christianity is true, pantheism is false because these two things are have competing truth claims. There's a contradiction here. So if I show Christianity true, I've shown pantheism false. I've shown polytheism false. I've shown Hinduism false. I've shown Buddhism false, at least on the points where it disagrees with Christian theology. So I just show Christianity true to demonstrate that those things are false. Um, on the other hand, I could also, you know, come up with questions. Like if they believe in reincarnation, I can have, offer specific challenges to that, you know things like that um, um yeah so the first thing i would do with with a polytheist or say like a hindu you said is ask them why they believe and then tr and gather that evidence gather their reasons just listen and gather the reasons and then compare that with the reasons to believe in christianity and do an honest comparison between the two and if, if they're going to follow the law the the path of logic and reason then that should lead them to christianity but this is this is going to be a, a long conversation if you're going to do that. Um, Patrick Mosher, is there any secular historical or archaeological evidence for the Exodus? I already answered that question. Um, Zach Bradley says, "Hello, Pastor Mike. Hi, Zach. Um, I've been extremely blessed by your ministry. Keep fighting the good fight. Thanks, man. And I absolutely intend to. Um, and just a reminder: pray for me for April 11th. That is when we have our debate between me and Matt Dillahunty on the resurrection. I think it's kind of a big deal." Um, I'm in over my head doing debates with a very experienced debater on these types of issues. So I very much appreciate your guys' prayers. I mean, the resurrection is true. I'm not, I'm not worried about that. Uh, but I'm definitely hoping that I can represent it well in a way that reaches out to people who are open to the evidence. Um, anyway, you said, my question concerns the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Does it happen at salvation or is it after? Uh, it seems to me that it could be both. Now, that's going to be... Um, lots of scriptures and we're getting a little late in the stream for me to go through a bunch of them but it seems to me that it could be both um uh, it seems like that happens more than once to, to individuals so um, that's my opinion i think the baptism of the holy spirit and the indwelling of the holy spirit are not identical the indwelling i think happens upon salvation the baptism seems like it could be uh, like an overflowing type thing and R. Rodriguez asked the question, uh, why does Jesus refer to Mary's God as his God at John 20, 17? Um, so let's bring up the passage. This is at the resurrection of Jesus. He is just risen and he's now appearing to the women. And I'll bring it up for you guys to see as well. Um, he says to her, do not cling to me, which, which doesn't mean don't touch me. Some people think this is a, oh, make it bigger for you. Um, but it clean, he means you, you can't just hold on to me. I, I have things to do. So he says, for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Now, the the emphasis here, I think, 
is that Jesus is the connecting point between us and God. He's the one mediator between man and God. And so he's like, he's my father, and now he's your father. He's my God, and he's your God. That that the connection that, that Jesus, as this uh, as he's come as the perfect man to be the mediator between God and man, he's now su- succeeded this death and resurrection. And so now he says, like, you have me, you have the father. You have, you have me, you have God. Um, could Jesus call the Father his God? Well, I mean, he's 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 truly human. He's truly God, but he's also truly human. So yes, he can say, my God. I think that's legitimate. I think the best explanation for that is the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, so there's my short answer right there. Something to think about. Sorry if I moved too quickly through it. Um, I think I'll take like one or two more and we'll call it a night. Uh, Lindy Z says, what are your thoughts on preterism? Um, I actually have a debate on preterism, um, which we didn't get into as many issues as I hoped, but the debate on preterism, you, if you just type up Mike Winger preterism debate on YouTube, it'll probably pop up. And, um, my short thoughts are, uh, preterism. When you first hear it, it sounds good, right? As you're first listening to it and they start, and by the way, preterism guys, if you don't know, is the idea that all or most of Bible prophecy was was fulfilled by the time of 70 AD at the destruction of the temple. That's the general view of preterism, right? There's various views within the views. That's the general idea. But I don't think it's valid for several reasons. But here's the reason why I think some people fall into it is when you start looking at this, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, it does look like it fulfills certain things in the text of scripture, but it doesn't fulfill enough. But if you start like liking the idea, like you see, oh, it, it fits that, it fits that, it fits that, it fits that. Then by the time you get to the stuff it doesn't fulfill, you start kind of bending the text of scripture a bit. And I think that's what ends up happening. Just my opinion, maybe I'm wrong. I think that's what ends up happening. So I think preterism, it looks good on the way in, but it ends up not being very good uh, as you kind of plow your way through it and you start comparing it with the rest of scriptures. It just doesn't work to me, uh, preterism. Um, as a as a view of the text and full preterism can lead into actual heresy it gets into some weird stuff like saying that the second coming of jesus has already fully happened and that basically we're living in like a heavenly eternal state right now and it's like what are you talking about it gets weird so there's partial preterism full preterism full preterism is like to me a little scary partial preterism is just wrong in my opinion (laughs) um Okay, so Reatune says, are Christian head coverings biblical? Um, I don't think that they're necessary. I hold that as a tentative opinion because the passage itself, I feel like I don't have a full grasp of it like I want to. My opinion is I don't think they're necessary. Um, and I have a lot more details on that. But maybe one day I'll make a video content, make video teaching on that. Um, you guys, there's a lot more questions you guys have. I'm so sorry that I'm not going to be able to get to them all. I'm looking, I'm just scanning through them all. Um, I... I don't have the ability to do all of them, but I hope that this has been a fruitful video for you and I will do another Q&A in the future and you guys can always be bringing your questions. I try to give priority to, to people you know, who have asked questions over and over and you feel like it hasn't been answered. I'm sorry if that's you. Um, quick few announcements real quick. Uh, so again, tomorrow at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, I'm going live with John McRae from What Do You Meme and, and um, Cameron Bertuzzi from Capturing Christianity to talk about our video project. But more than that, we're going to do some some Q&A as well. So you can always come back tomorrow and ask some questions, get my, not only my opinion, but those guys as well. Cameron focuses on philosophy and John focuses on sort of, uh, well, he does philosophy, some theology, and he also does, um, like, he's good with with the rhetoric, which is good. We need that as well. Um, <clears throat> what else? Yeah. 
that's it. That's all I got. So thank you so much. Um, if you want to support this ministry, there's a link in the description below. You can. I'm not begging you to, but I am for the first time opening this ministry to financial support because it's going to be my full-time thing moving forward in the future. My church isn't going to be able to support me um, doing full-time online ministry. There just isn't a budget for that. And so for me to do this, it's going to have to be self-supporting. Uh, and I think we'll make it. I think it'll happen. I think God's going to provide. So we're just kind of We've made the door open for that. I, I hate all that all that money stuff. Um, but the truth is, if I can't make it self-supporting, then what I'd have to do is go find a full-time job, which will keep me from doing this. I'm willing to do that, but I think this will better serve the kingdom of Christ, and that's my main goal. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So, Lord bless you guys. We will see you next time. And I'm looking for where I have a button to turn off this stream, because I don't know that I... Yeah. Oh, found it. Bye.